Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. Oh, that's not right. Let's try this. He did the monster match. Sorry, this might do. Ah, right music, wrong weather, certainly not for this time of year. Ooh, Falsuk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool your jets, Jean. We might leave that one there. Just not feeling that puddle-splashing joie de vivre. It is miserable. Rain, rain and more rain. Thank you, Keen. And now it is official. It was the wettest July on record. And so far, August, no great shakes. The great euphemism unsettled is being thrown about. What is going on? How wet has it been over the past month? According to our provisional data, um, it's been, we've had 215% so far, this is without yesterday's rainfall being added, um, to our gridded data set. So that that data set goes back to 1940. And the previous wettest was in 2009 and at a 202% of its average, long-term average. So 215% at least. Um, And then across our primary weather stations, 17 of the 25 stations have had over 200% of their long-term average, with 12 stations having record high um, uh, rainfall for July. That's Paul Moore, climatologist with MetAaron. But we did, it must be remembered, have a very hot June. In fact, the hottest on record. But other months too were given superlatives. So over the last 12 months, um, we, July is now the th- this July is now the third month which has been the wettest on average. So March had its wettest March on average as well. And last October, across the whole country, was the wettest on average as well. And yes, as you say, it's, it's broken up with some very dry months like February only had 36% uh, of average rainfall. The climate projections are showing that there will be more intense heavy rainfall events, but also longer, drier uh, periods as well. So intense and extreme. And just have a listen to Rachel's voice when she asks this question. I'm almost afraid to ask, but how's it looking for the start of August? Um, Well, there's no good news for the next week, I'm afraid. It does look to stay unsettled for at least the next week. La 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 la, we cannot hear you. And then more climatologists. This time it was the turn of Cahill Nolan with Philip. And if Ireland had its wettest month on record worldwide, July was the hottest. Broadly speaking, in the course of the last couple of weeks and months, we've had four heat domes sitting around the globe. One over North America, one over the North Atlantic, one over Europe and one over Asia. What are the individual events that these have given rise to? 
I suppose really looking back over the course of the past year, we can say significantly that there has been an increase in terms of the amount of heat waves that we've seen occurring right across the globe at any given moment in time. You mentioned correctly these four particular heat domes. Essentially, those heat domes have developed on account of a result of anthropogenic climate change due to the weakening of the jet stream, which essentially it's been able to trap these heat domes under these anticyclones across the globe. We've seen significant... An anticyclone is a big system of high pressure, which we would usually associate in this country with good weather. Correct. We would typically associate that with good weather. I suppose looking at the individual events, certainly I suppose we've obviously dealt quite extensively with the impact of the heat wave in Europe. We've seen temperatures pushing close to the all-time record with temperatures of 48.2 degrees Celsius. The European record, of course, is 48.8 degrees Celsius recorded in 2021. But certainly across the globe, we've seen parts of as the southern states, let's say within the United States, have seen significant heat. We've seen temperatures in China breaking all-time national records at 52.2 degrees Celsius. Earlier on in the year, there's been significant heat waves in parts of Central and Southeast Asia, the worst, I suppose, recorded on record in terms of the significance of the heat there. And, and I suppose the communities that have been disproportionately impacting has been, in that particular area of the world, has been some of the most vulnerable communities. But recent descriptions of boiling seas, was that not a scare too far? What is your view as a scientist of some of the language that has been used to describe it? I'm thinking particularly of the pushback against um, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres saying that the world of the seas are boiling right now. Does that kind of superlatives, uh, or choice of superlatives in the language sit comfortably with you? The present rate of warming that we're seeing has reached a point where it hasn't been this hot for the past three million years. In terms of the increase in temperatures that we're seeing and the rate of increase, there was a period of time previously known as the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum event, which occurred 55 million years ago. During that particular period, it was considered abrupt climate change in terms of the increase in temperatures. The rate of temperature increase during that particular event was 0.8 degrees Celsius every 1,000 years. Over the past 100 years, we have seen the temperature increase by 1.0 degrees Celsius. The significance of the changes that we're seeing on a global scale do certainly warrant the words that we're seeing and the strong language that we are seeing from, let's say, the IPCC and from the Mm. UN. It's an attempt, it's a plea, essentially, for global leaders to be able to take on board the science, which has been crystal really for the course of the past three decades now. And we're still seeing an increase in terms of CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions, leading to an exacerbation of the situation rather than an improving situation. We know, don't we, that the last time the world was this hot, there were alligators in Trafalgar Square. (laughs) Something that has been proven by uh, paleoarchaeologists. Okay, Colin Nolan, climatologist. Frightening stuff. And here at home, the farmers are certainly having it tough. And for the rest of us, well, it is hard to think ice pops and beech reeds when you are struggling to get into galoshes. And this is having an impact on businesses dependent on tourism. However, on Morning Ireland for Niasa Clisman of horse-drawn caravans in County Wicklow, an unexpected boost. I was just going to say we have actually had a slightly positive effect that was entirely unexpected Um, and people are coming much earlier to inquire about our pumpkin patch at Halloween would you believe? Simply because I think they're already mentally in autumn mode. I think a lot of parents have switched off the sort of summer sun cream, short sandals sort of mode and are already thinking autumn um, and kind of the mindset has changed given the weather is certainly what we're seeing from this side. No, 
too soon. And then broomsticks in shop windows and cover your ears, kids. Back to school. Uh, Halloween decorations shop is a bit like back to school for the adults. But it's like, no, we're not ready for dark nights and lighting fires and things. Relax. Relax, you say? Well, tell that to this texter who is picking a fight with August. Why do people treat August as the holiday month? It's a dishonest month, pretending to be summer, when in fact it's autumnal. Trees are looking tired, hanging baskets have a hangdog look, nights are drawing in. No, no, summer is May, June and half of July. But I know what you mean. I've noticed the horse chestnuts are out, the, the, the leaves of the horse chestnut tree are looking ragged, the hedges are looking very, very tired. They look like, look at, we want the autumn to happen now. And I said, only last night, I said, oh, it's nine o'clock, the lights are on. More to do with the drizzle and the weather and the mist and so on. <laughs> it is, in fairness, a little grim. However, if you looked skywards this week, there was beauty in the moon. Not just any moon, a supermoon. On Morning Ireland with Kean McCormack, Francis McCarthy of Blackrock Castle Observatory in Cork. The supermoon is a term that was introduced only in about the 1970s, in case you're saying I haven't heard this before, to describe the blue moon and the supermoon. So we have the supermoon, the moon is a little bit closer to us than it normally is, and the blue moon gives us two moons, two full moons in the same calendar month. So two supermoons in one month. How rare is Mm -hmm. that? Well, you can only be... A blue moon, if you're two in the month, and about every three years, you're going to get two moons in a month, just the way the calendar works out with the 31 days versus the 29 and a half. So the blue moon isn't that uncommon. And if you get a supermoon one month, it's highly likely that the next moon will also be a little bit closer on average, just from the shape of the orbit and where we are in a position relative to the moon. How does it compare to the moon that we expect at the end of the month then, the blue moon? Well, the two of them are almost about the same distance away from us. So they're about three sizes of the Earth closer to us than they often are on average. It makes a very slight difference in the appearance of the moon, which is hard to distinguish with this moon illusion, which also happens, which is when the full moon rises, it looks very large against the horizon. I sometimes ask the young people that I work with, how big is the moon if you were to reach out your hand and try to grab it on the horizon? Show me with your hands how big it is. And I might challenge the listeners to think about how big is that moon going to be if you were just going to grab it? Because it's remarkable how small it really is prompting those hardened newsroom types to ask this. Well, is it worth staying up to watch then? Well, I'm always a fan of looking at the moon. It is a beautiful object. It's easy to see with your eyeballs. You can catch the features and the shadows and the craters of the moon. And you do have the whole night long to look for it. I think that's a yes. And with Philip straight in, no messing for physicist Shane Bergen. Is there a dark side of the moon? No. Um, The far side of the moon might be the better way of describing it. I don't know whether Pink Floyd considered that, but I I read actually that Pink Floyd, when coming up with the name for the album, was talking more about lunacy and the idea of madness more so than the astronomical idea of the moon. (laughs) So so maybe it was all right in the the first place. Um, The moon rotates um, on its own axis, just like the Earth, um, and uh, it's synced 
with with the Earth so that we only ever see one side of it. So that's the side of the moon that we're all familiar with and we look up at, at night. And the first time the humans had ever seen the other side of the moon was when the Apollo mission, Apollo 8, went around the back of the moon in 1969. But it gets as much light as the side that we see. And of course, we see the moon because the sun shines on it. It illuminates it. It's a grey um, texture. So it, it's quite bright when the moon shines on it. So, no, there's no dark side. Is it one of and we will turn our ears to Lunar Tunes with Carol Moran and this offering from Claude Debussy. Incredibly beautiful. On Monday, the desperately tragic news of the deaths of two young women in a car crash. Kia McCann was 17 and Alava Mohammed was 16. They were travelling to their Debs in Clonus in County Monaghan. On Morning Ireland, Principal of Largy College in Clonus, Sharon McGuinness, spoke to Audrey. The thoughts of the whole country are with the families and all of you in Clonus in what must seem like a never-ending nightmare since Monday evening. How are you and your colleagues? Yes, uh, Audrey, it's uh, been a very, very difficult, as you can imagine, 36 hours for our our school and uh, the entire Clonus community. I would just like to pay tribute to the the two beautiful girls, uh, Kia and Delava, who have passed away. Uh, so tragically in the car accident on Monday night. Well, we would like to hear more about them, Sharon, because looking at their pictures yesterday, I mean, they were so beautiful, young women, so vibrant, so alive. They were best friends. They they were indeed. They were best friends and uh, they'd been best friends, uh, I suppose, since they had both uh, come into the Clonus community. Um, I know that uh, Delava herself had uh, arrived in Ireland in 2018. Uh, she'd spent eight months in, in Monaster Evan and then she settled in Clonus um, as part of the Syrian resettlement programme. Um, uh, Kia herself and Delava then became best friends. And uh, look, uh, words can't describe uh, how our school, how our school, the, the community of Clonus is feeling just at this time. 
And what have you heard about them over the past 24 hours or so from teachers and other students about what they were like? So Delava, uh, look, uh, Delava was always smiling. Uh, she was a gorgeous soul, um, loyal and, and bubbly. And uh, she was always very happy in, 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 around, in around the school. Um, she radiated goodness and she was just full of energy. Uh, as you mentioned there, uh, the two girls in, in their dresses, Delava in her blue dress, Kia in her red dress, uh, the, the picture that that paints in, in Deb's dresses, it, it just doesn't bear thinking about uh, what the, when we think about the events of Monday evening. Kia then herself, uh, Kia was uh, pleasant and courteous. She had a great love of children and she, had, she hoped to go on to, to study childcare at third level and now that is a dream that will just not be realised. Sharon McGuinness, Principal of Largy College in Clonus, speaking on Wednesdays. Morning, Ireland. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On a few programmes this week, bees. On Munico's Wild, Ken Norton, Secretary of the Federation of Irish Beekeepers Associations. It's yeah. scary business. Right. I'm terrified um, of bees. And, and I'm um, sure most people are. Well, you see, basically what happens with the bees, you see, bees are... Uh, are a very clever little insect in so much as they're a bit like horses and dogs. So like if you're walking down the road and you're sort of scared of the neighbor's dog, he may be, he will play up on you because he knows you have this, he can sense it. He can get the scent of you and like a bit of fear. And the same with a horse is. So if you go near horses or dogs and you're afraid of them, they will play, out, play act up on you. And it's exactly the same as bees. What will calm both them and you down? Lavender. Now, the lavender, you see, basically what happens with the lavender, like I would use, and then a lot of other beekeepers would use, lavender in their smoker. Now, like, as far as I'm concerned, as I always say to people, it's not a rock concert we're at, so don't keep squirting the the goodness out of your smoker. Just have it puffing away there. Show it about a third, a third of your hand of lavender into the smoker, and it'll calm you down as well. It'll calm the bees down as well. The bees will be much more relaxed. So, so don't just stand there and squirt it straight into their face. You can just drift a, a couple of puffs of the smoke across. Now, always remember, as I say to people, the smoker's only a deterrent to keep the bees calm if they get out of hand. Now, that's enough. If we're outside and someone's having a cigarette, we can probably get away with it. But if they're puffing the smoky, into our face continually, we will lose the head. And it's exactly the same with the little bees. So you just drift it across. So the lavender then will calm the bees down. As I say to beekeepers, if you use enough, it'll calm you down as well. From Mooney Goes Wild. Meanwhile, unfamiliar with studio etiquette, Brendan Courtney in for Ray. Um, mm, mm. Yeah? Isn't she co- it's beautiful. Mark out of 10. 10 out of 10, 12 Lovely. out of 10. That, as honey goes, that inchy core honey could be my new rap name. I love that. <laughs> that pinky right in the jar. Stand-ins. And that honey was from the B8 initiative in Dublin. Shanine Ulochon had gone to speak to beekeeper Anthony Freeman O'Brien. She lay about 2,000 eggs a day. 2,000 a day? Yeah, yeah, she knocks them out. <laughs> yeah, she... Um, and But she's very little control in the hive. Everybody thinks the queen, like... Is this um, leader and has power over all the mental health of the bees and all, but she doesn't. The queen, it's a real democracy. They, they debate every decision they make. 
They like the microphone. Duty, yeah, they'll, they'll be all over your camera as well. They're very curious. So these are, this is called brood. These are all sealed walker, walker cells. So the walkers are the females and the ma- and dr- drones are the males. They, but the males are useless, they do nothing. <laughs> they, they look like bumblebees and they don't really look like the walkers. They have no stinger, they, they can't really feed themselves. The, the walkers do everything. Is that a metaphor for life? <laughs> the workers do everything and they're, they're female and the drones are useless, to quote the man himself. I, I did remember in the dark recesses of nature in school that actually the workers are female. They mm-hmm. do all the work and the drones just lay around and do nothing. That's it, yeah. They, they mate and then they die. That's Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. Bye bye, you useless drone. Harsh is right, but that brings us in a roundabout way to another Brendan, O'Connor this time and his, how to describe this, a scary but in a good way, conversation with Dr Paddy Barrett, preventative cardiologist at Blackrock Clinic. And given the job that he does, he knows what matters when we're looking back at our lives. The regret that that, that uh, comes up most repeatedly, um, there are two of them that, that feature um, in the top two. And this has been studied extensively um, in people who are, are nearing death and by, by palliative care services. The second leading regret is, is what you would actually, I suppose, guess, and that is spending too much time at work. Okay. Um, as the line goes, um, the only people who are going to remember that you stayed late at work are your kids. But the number one reason uh, and the number one regret that people have is this idea that they didn't have the courage to live the life that they, they, they knew they should have. And this is this idea of, of becoming who you are. And so this is where we go back to this idea of, of time. Um, and we get distracted by this idea of quality time or we get distracted that we have infinite time. Um, as Buddha says, the, the, question, the problem is, is you think you have time and you don't. Um, and so it distracts so us. So I, I, I live my best life when I've done X, Y, Z. When I, I, I'm busy at the moment, but there'll be a time. Exactly. And, and this is this idea of horizon happiness. We push it over the horizon and I will, I will do the thing that is most important um, when I have the time, when, when I've achieved X, Y or Z. And all of us, uh, whether we actually have a, a deep religious belief or not, are in some form of immortality quest. Um, and in this idea that if we're going to live forever in some sense, we don't have to actually rush or actually put much emphasis on what is happening today. Either we're, we're trying to achieve literal immortality in terms of an afterlife or rebirth, or it's going to be uploaded to the cloud or some form of symbolic immortality insofar as we're going to leave a piece of literature or art or a work or children that will, that will exist after we have gone. The monument. Yeah. yeah. And so, so that is a symbolic immortality. And the focus of their conversation was not so much the heart as the soul and time. There is no such thing as quality time. There is just time. And there's that process of being with those you love and having the courage to live the life that that, that you know that you should. And he broke that down into simple but rather sobering statistics. We spend much less time than we think with our family of origin. Uh, correct. And, and the, the figures here are, are scary. They're, they're also tilted because when, you know, as the, as the father of a two and a half year old, I spent all of my time uh, with my two and a half year old. Yeah. But the reality Wish, is... And wishing it away some of the time. And, and so, of course, sometimes yeah. you're frustrated. Sometimes you want to, to do other things. But you, you make a, a realisation when you look at these raw statistics that on average, by the time you are 18 years of age, you will have spent over 90% of the time that you will ever spend with your parents has gone, has passed. Wow. And, and the same applies in reverse, is that if you're a child who has parents and you're over 18 years of age, 
over 90% of that time has passed. And we, we think about this idea of, you know, the average lifespan is about 80 years of age. And if you're over 40 years of age, you're in the second half of your life. And all that time with those people has been heavily front loaded. And all the time that is remaining are, are probably a very sh a shrinking small number of, of visits, particularly um, if you live abroad, for example, and you're coming home to, say, visit parents or, or spend time with, uh, with people. Reality is, is that, you know, if you have two to three visits a year and maybe your parents have 10 years left in life, you have a very small number of visits in total. Yeah. And to, to appreciate, again, it's this idea that, you know, I'll make up for it with a, a very special birthday. It's going to be an 80th birthday party or it's going to be a, an X or a Y. It's like, no, it's going to be the, the, the Friday evening that you spend in just simply watching television and not really talking about anything important, but just actually spending that time. The bits between the cracks. It's this idea of this, this fabric that makes up your life is, is, is not the, the big events. And of course, they're important and which of course we should enjoy them, but it's the bits between them. This is very sobering stuff, isn't it? I know you're not trying to depress people, like, but it, it, it's but, a bit of a reality check, isn't it? But that, that's the point. The, the point is, 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 is to sharpen our focus on, on what we have available right now. Grim Reaper. Brendan asked this. Do you lay a bit of this on your patients ever? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so bec well, because this is the whole point of healthcare. It's, it's the point of what you're doing. It's the, it's, the, yeah. it's, the, it's, it's the central point. And so, so the thing is, is the only reason you want to live longer, the only reason you want to have a better quality of life in terms of how you kind of move and think in the world is so that you can focus your effort and attention and energy on this. And secondarily is that when you actually sharpen your focus on this, you realize that, that that is what you want. And then it acts as a motivation to do the things from a practical perspective that are necessary to actually achieve a longer life and a higher quality of life. Achieving a longer life with a higher quality of life is, 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 is redundant in and of itself. It needs a purpose. It needs a motivation. And this is why when, when we talk about getting healthier and, and it, it, you know, it seems kind of very preachy to say that, you know, you, you need to do X and Y with all these different things. And it's like, yeah, 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 whatever. You need to have a motivation. People do things because they want to. And so when you have a very clear emphasis on what is it that you want and why it's valuable to you, to do the things that are necessary to achieve those things becomes a lot easier. Dr. Paddy Barrett with Brendan. Gather you rosebuds while you may. But while we ponder death, let's talk food pairings that just should not be. Soya sauce, vanilla ice cream, chefs at war, Holly Dalton and Gaz Smith. And obviously you cannot do this item without pineapple and ham on pizza. I know how divisive the the pineapple on pizza can be. Um, I I think there is a pizza for every occasion. All very peace in our time. But off the fence he got, oh yes. I love the mixture of, of sweet and savoury. Um, and no one's going to tell me that I can't have pineapple on pizza. It is one of the best food um, creations that has been made in the last 500 million years. This was the one. <laughs> wow. This is the one. And not only that, it's got to be bacon. Bacon and pineapple. Not mm. ham. Bacon. Well, ham and bacon are two very, very different. Yeah, so it, it's got to be, 
it's got to have the crispiness and the saltiness of the bacon. It can't be flaccid, you know, it's got to be hard. Okay. I'm, um, I, I am getting into dangerous territory trying to pick a fight with you of all people on this, but I would suggest to you that bacon really shouldn't be served with anything because, again, the only thing that you ever end up tasting is bacon. That's because I like bacon. Well then, just have mm. bacon. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel like you're ganging, ganging up, up on, on you. Now. Yes, we are absolutely because you're <laughs> wrong. I always sneak a smoothful of strawberry jam into almost all stop. of my sandwiches. Oh, would you stop? Like a nice you know, roast should, chicken sandwich, should, uh... butter, coleslaw, and this tiny bit of jam. Oh, it's beautiful. You, you should go to Sweden because my husband is Swedish, and like it, you know, they eat food over there like it's a joke, and it's just like, oh yeah, my roast dinner, and I'll, I'll have like a. I'll have like a spoon of jam alongside it, a spoon of like lingonberry jam. Break. The most, the most popular like pizza topping over there is banana, banana and chicken is the is the one they go or for. Meatballs with lingonberry jam. Um, Ex- exactly. Animals. With Brendan, the other one, these two, Joanne McNally and Garoth Farrelly, and while COVID may have brought them together, comedy in the pandemic. High risk up there with choirs, remember? Garoth started filling out the form for on post. Originally, I was going to be a postman. She was going to be a postman. Um, Joanne was screaming down a Zoom at me about how, don't Sorry, take the job as a postman. <laughs> Go, you know, just do something else, study, yeah. and then come back to stand-up. That was so your, I think that, I that was your lowest point during lockdown. No yeah. shade to postman, but when he rang me and told me he was leaving comedy <laughs> to become a postman, I was like, get on the, get on the FaceTime there, I need to look you in the eyes. <laughs> yeah. This needs a bit of eye it's contact. 10 o'clock in the morning, yeah. I had six gin and tonics, it's time for some home treats, come out. Yeah, I've been drinking since 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> but thank God, no, because you kind of we kept each other in the business. I think, yeah, absolutely. there was a temptation yeah. to. I was like, "What am I going to do? Nursing? You're going to be a postman?" Because we thought the 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 at one stage it was like, "Okay, comedy might come back, but everyone's going to be in like a Zorb ball." Do you remember there was remember there was talk about yeah, there was talk about the stuff keeping the audience separate because like laughing was. <laughs> basically people expelling air so <laughs> nobody and funny no nobody shade but I'm pretty sure that's where I got COVID was at your show really yeah I love being part of your COVID journey <laughs> and it was my birthday as well it was but it was the first time I'd, yeah I'd inhaled other people spit basically yeah. willingly at a com- and yeah. it was packed because your shows are packed shows you had a good time you had your that, mouth open that, that, yeah <laughs> laughing you know. laughing yeah you know. I, 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 don't think I've, I don't think I've ever had a good time with my mouth closed so anyway <laughs> She strong-armed Garoud into sticking with the comedy. Basically, I said to Garoud, stay in comedy. And he said, no, I'm out, I'm done. And I said, stay in comedy, you can do my tour. And he went, no. And then he saw the size of the tour and he's that greedy. He went, actually, do you know what? 100%. I'm back. I'm back in comedy, baby. I'm not an artist, but I'm not stupid. Yeah, exactly. So off we went. And after all of that, the Mr. and Mrs. Quiz. Uh, who would play Joanne in the film of her life? Bette Midler. <laughs> Currently. I, well, I, I'd shows. actually love to work myself, to be honest. Oh, okay. <laughs> Joanne, who's the vainest? Oh, me for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always plucking at myself. Garoud. I'm always trying to get Garoud to book in for a pluck, but he won't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, so come on, vicious. when are you going like to start the work? So when is the work going to start? Yeah. It's going to be too late soon. It's remarkable, the natural, not lateral sitting in front of me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll float it's like before, my You're like a plastic clown. Tell me how she feels and it's thanks to the miracle of yeah. science. <laughs> What's Joanne's celebrity crush? Oh. oh, I don't know if it's a celebrity. I'd say it's somebody in jail. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, somebody from a true crime. Okay, okay, I, okay. Yeah. I love a crime. I know the answer to this, Joanne. Who's the better driver? I say I am, actually. What? Yeah. No points there. Yeah, I would. Okay, am I and not? what is Joanne's guilty pleasure? I didn't drive the van into anything. Joanne's guilty pleasure is... Never um, stay time. Uh, that's, <laughs> the, it's, that's Celine, uh, it's all coming back to me now by Celine Dion. Abs- that, yeah, True, yeah? Yes. Okay, and Joanne, who is the most attractive? Oh, Brandon, you. Hey, yeah. Joanne is the winner. <laughs> no words. Back in a bit. Welcome back. In court in Washington, Donald J. Trump facing four counts of trying to overturn the 2020 US presidential election. His plea, not guilty. On Morning Ireland, only spoke to Eric Ham of CTV News. Now, Jack Smith is the prosecuting special counsel, but Anya asked, what about Trump's defence strategy? His lawyer has been doing the rounds of the talk shows, his current lawyer. The argument seems to be about his First Amendment rights, that he had a right to believe that, you know, and say that he believed this was the wrong outcome of the election and that he had won. And also that in challenging the outcome of the election, he was following legal advice. Um, Having looked at the indictment, um, how will those defences work? They simply don't hold up because when you read the indictment early on in the indictment, Jack Smith literally concedes the free speech point. He says clearly Donald Trump has a right to make these claims. He has a right to believe that he did not win or that the election was stolen from him. And he said that even though that's not true, he has a right to even lie about what happened. But where Donald Trump crossed the line is when he obstructed a a congressional proceeding, number one, and two, when he actually conspired to do so. And that's where the evidence, the overwhelming evidence comes in about the fake elector schemes. And that is laid out in terms of the seven states where Donald Trump actively attempted to try to overturn the election. In addition to that, of course, we see how he conspires with the the unindicted co-conspirator conspirator number two, who is now who we now know is John Eastman, who attempted to get the f- former vice president to actually reject the, the the certification of the election. And so Jack Smith is going to be arguing about Donald Trump's actions, not his words. And with all eyes on the election next year, Anya asked this. On one level, you could argue that this is good news for Democrats, that the Republican frontrunner is facing all these uh, legal cases. On the other hand, just as in 2016, the news agenda is entirely being set and all about Donald J. Trump. That's true. It is. However, in 2016, Donald Trump was simply a candidate who was a blank slate. He had no political ideology. He had never run for office before, and he had never served in office before. But now he's a former president, and the events of January 6th are etched in the minds of all Americans. And that is something that most Americans, when you hear Donald Trump's name, you will hear January 6th, as well as, at least now, the thrice-indicted former president. That's going to be, I think, a pretty heavy load for even Donald Trump to have to carry between now and November of next year. Let's leave that there for now.
On the county measure this week, Ross Common and Vincent Woods was shown a shield and a gig by Marion Harlow of the Historical and Archaeological Society. It is extremely unique in the fact that it isn't weathered and also the braided hair. It's the t- typical Sheila Nagig exhibitionist figure, pendulous breast, woman, squatting yes. woman, yes. yes, exactly. But the hair is very unique. Yes, you have this kind of great big braided hair. This yes, uh, yes. Now, people come specially to see that. And where, where does this come it from? It comes from Mary? a place called Rahara, which is halfway between Roscommon and Athlone. Now, we know the original church in Rahara dated from the 12th or the 13th century. They were, they're found in England, they're found in um, France and I think in Spain as well. It's, remarkable. it's a remarkable figure, there's something it is. so but striking. If you look at that, it's a keystone. It, it means that it's for holding an arch in place, the last stone that's dropped in, and it's, it's made specific for the purpose. So it, in a sense, it could, that figure can be either bestowing blessing or holding people back, you know, it's, it's, it has the potential for yes. all that, hasn't it? Yes. Some say it's to ward off the evil eye. Some say it's to warn about lust. Others say it's a fertility symbol. Others, I know some of them uh, traditionally in other parts of the country were used uh, by women who visited them to help them through childbirth. So there are as many theories as there are Sheila the Geeks, really. The always fascinating county measure. And yesterday on Liveline, cures and potions, holy wells, cabbage leaves, worms. Perhaps not peer-reviewed by The Lancet, but for callers to Liveline, effective. Anne's father-in-law was the late Christy Levy from Athboy in County Mead and he had the cure for eczema and ringworm. He was the seventh son, after all. Well, I'll tell you, when he was born... Um, they automatically kind of knew that if it was a seventh boy that they would test him to see if he had this cure. So uh, they'd get, dig up an ordinary garden worm and um, they they put it in the baby's hand. And you know normally with the nervous system that, that, that if you cut it in half it still wriggles. Well, with this particular cure or a sign that the baby had the cure, uh, the worm froze in his little hand. And... <laughs> that, was, that was the signal. I saw I'm just um, this image of this baby with a worm and a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, uh, I mean, he was born maybe the late 1920s or early 1930s. I'm not sure now. But uh, yeah, apparently he had his first visit as a little baby where they held the little infant's hand to the eczema or to the ringworm, I think it was. A man, uh, a, a man with very bad ringworm came to their house. And the baby was um, produced. Uh, yeah, produced. Yeah, yeah. So he, then he cured people all his life. He just grew up with that. And he blessed. He would bless the uh, affected area three times with his right hand and three times with his left hand. And that's all he did. He didn't have to touch the person. And. <laughs> Uh, and so I, ha- I have to say, significant. Yeah. I have to say, I am <laughs> deeply sceptical of this. But yeah, but I, yeah, I hear. I, I mean, I, it it is fascinating to me that obviously the word went out that you know people were, oh, were, yeah. were he was getting good reviews yeah. if he was on TripAdvisor <laughs> or, or uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was a sellout. Yeah, and so people came from from far and near, everywhere. Yeah. And it was always uh, Monday, Thursdays, and sometimes on a Sunday. 
um, he, he could do it as well. So he would have more cars outside his house than there would be at the, the local doctor's clinic sometimes. And the boys had to move out of the sitting room because the visitors would call, you know. And um, my husband, Sean, always says, Thursday night was uh, an awful awkward because Top of the Pops was on. <laughs> <laughs> and he couldn't watch Top of the Pops because his father yeah. was curing eczema in the front room. Yeah, there were people sitting in the front room waiting for their turn. He was, yeah, so busy. Yesterday's Live Line with Katie. And if you want to get your sport on, loads. You have the rugby Ireland boo this evening against Italy. And on Sunday, the Camogie final. Waterford in their very first since 1945. Versus Cork gunning for their 29th All-Ireland title. That's just greedy. On Morning Ireland, Des forced the hand of Kate Kelly, herself a winner of nine All-Star Awards. And if you had to call it, Kate... Well, my heart is saying Waterford, but I think my head is, is tipping Cork that there just might be that bit stronger on the bench. But look, at I, I think it, it, it will go down to the wire. And I think that it, Cork will just have that little bit of hunger and that strength and depth that they might see him over the line on Sunday. But with Philip accents and yes, Cork staying with Cork and an attempt by Pat Fitzpatrick to explain the special music that is our southern cousins. The funny thing about Cork when I was growing up is that it was a kind of an enclosed place, almost like East Berlin. We had our own radio station, RT Cork, your own newspaper as well. So it was a sense that Cork people didn't tend to leave Cork, which was it was seen as a kind of a crime. So it was that kind of almost <laughs> like being kept in. Well, no, the accusation when I moved to Dublin, someone said to you, are you above in Dublin? No, yourself all the time. So the all the time there is the accusation. Um <laughs> rather than going up for a match or the zoo. So, like, definitely, the, 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 you know, the, the degree of kind of interaction with people tends to matter. And, you know, Cork yeah. as well wouldn't have attracted many immigrants up until maybe 20 years ago when now suddenly the whole makeup of the place has changed, the city certainly. So, yeah, definitely, like, if it's an enclosed and a kind of a closed society. Talk uh, to me about the accents from within the city itself. Like, I mean, your alter ego, Reggie, from the Black Rock Road, uh, is... Uh, posh Cork, which is so very, very different to working class Cork. That's right. Well, I mean, the, the posh Cork, the key is actually, we don't care as much about, we, we, posh people in Cork wouldn't care as much about um, working class. They care about posh Dublin, which sounds quite English. Um, so that, that old kind of, you know, the English tones. If Philip, if I might suggest you'd have a small bit of it yourself. But the posh person in Cork would still <laughs> posh person in Cork would, would still try and maintain the kind of the sing song thing but it would be very whereas the working class one would go up at the end so it's all it's all it's always going up at the end um, so the emphasis is always on that last bit and you could go Two, two miles and you'd get it, you know, completely different accents. And obviously the West Cork accent, that's, you know, the, that's the Kerry accent really. It's just a West Cork accent uh, without manners. <laughs> oh, only a Cork person could get away with that. Well, that is it from this week's Playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. 